Welcome to the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where you can learn to avoid the downs and savor the ups. Here, 40-year veteran attorney Paul Samico will entertain you and help you understand the law in areas we might all face. Brushes with the police? Oh boy. Family disputes? Oh no. An injury and accident situations? Ouch. And now, here's Paul. Welcome to the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where I want you to avoid the downs and savor the ups. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. I'm being paid not to sing. Singing makes this terrible. I can't sing. Everybody says I have uh, a great shower voice, but even the shower disagrees. When I start to sing in the shower, the water goes off in protest. All right, enough of my jokes. Today, I want to talk about injury cases involving pre-existing injuries, pre-existing injuries. And the question in these types of cases is how much, if any, of the claimed injury after an accident is because of the accident. So if I'm already injured, if I have, say, a neck injury, and I can't really turn my head too far to the left or the right, and then I have an accident, and I claim that the accident caused me to be worse, well, how much worse? And then the question is, and how much should the one who hit me from behind, how much responsibility do they have for my current condition? Because if I'm worse, let's say to begin with, I was 20% disabled, Now I'm 40% disabled or 50. So should they have to pay for the entire circumstance or only the differential? Very interesting questions that juries and courtrooms all across the United States are faced with more often than you'd like to think. So in this particular case, uh, about five years ago, it looks like, a jury in Fairfax County, Virginia, my hometown where I practice law, Um, was asked to decide about all of the decisions of facts and consequences and um, causation for a motorist claiming injuries from a rear-end crash. Both negligence and causation were being disputed by the defendant at the trial, as well as the extent of the treatment. So get that. Claiming that the plaintiff, a woman by the name of Hannah, Overtreated treatment beyond a certain point wasn't necessary, according to the defendant. Well, in this particular situation, uh, the plaintiff is claiming that the accident occurred when she stopped behind another driver who stopped suddenly. She says that the force of the impact from behind pushed her into the car in front. Okay, we hear that frequently. She says that. The defendant, the one who hit her, failed to keep sufficient distance behind her vehicles, was driving too close, and failed to stop in time to avoid the accident. As a result, she says that she suffered a serious aggravation of pre-existing asymptomatic spinal arthritis. Asymptomatic, meaning she had no symptoms. Spinal arthritis. Now, how do we know that she has arthritis 
if she's not having symptoms? Well, that's actually pretty easy to understand. At some point, she had uh, x-rays. X-rays can show that there is arthritic change in your spinal column. She says that the asymptomatic arthritis was now symptomatic. So she was claiming damages for both the economic, the lost money from medical bills that she had to spend uh, to get treatment and care, and non-economic damages, meaning her suffering, her inconvenience, the aggravation, pain, disruption of her life. The other side of the story here, the guy who hit her, defendant, claims that he struck her after she had already hit the vehicle in front of her. He says that he did everything he could do, but he was confronted with this sudden emergency and was unable to avoid striking this woman from behind. He further argues at trial, the defendant, the one being sued who hits this woman from behind, that she had no objective evidence of injury and she had pre-existing spinal problems that were unrelated to this accident. He says that she received too much treatment, excessive treatment for what, according to the records and the treatment and the testimony, was basically a muscle injury and that the plaintiff should have recovered after four months of physical therapy. In the closing argument, the attorney for the defendant says that uh, she's made a claim for all this money. I want you to reduce that by 75% because 75% of what she's claiming had nothing to do with this accident. Now, this woman, incidentally, was a widow, a woman in her mid-50s who worked as a bank teller. So we're going to come back after the break and share with, with you the results of what happened. The next case involves, again, a pre-existing condition being challenged by the drivers. This is a three-car collision, just like the last one, but the facts here are not being disputed as to what order of collisions took place. The plaintiff is the lead vehicle. There's a woman behind her and a woman behind that woman. And everybody agrees that vehicle number three, the last vehicle in line, rear-ends the vehicle in the middle, pushing that vehicle into the rear end of the plaintiff's vehicle. Okay, so that much is not being contested, but the plaintiff does testify in her direct examination in court that she felt two impacts. Now, that would suggest that the middle vehicle hit her, that the third vehicle hit the middle vehicle and pushed the middle vehicle back into her a second time. But nonetheless, the two defendants agreed as to the order of collisions that number three hit number two pushing number two into the plaintiff's vehicle. Okay, so the plaintiff files a lawsuit against both drivers, vehicles number two and number three, claiming that each one was negligent in failing to keep a proper lookout and maintain a clear distance between the cars. She claimed that she suffered a serious exacerbation of a pre-existing lumbar condition as a result of the impacts. Lumbar, of course, is your lower back. Now, the defendants disputed liability and damages. The third vehicle says that, yes, I did hit the middle vehicle and push the middle vehicle into uh, the plaintiff's vehicle, but 
I dispute the severity of the aggravation or exacerbation attributed by the plaintiff to the collision. Both defendants argued that it was a minor impact and it was not strong enough to cause a significant exacerbation of this woman's chronic lumbar pain. They maintained that the plaintiff was addicted to opiates and she received excessive medical treatment for this minor injury. The plaintiff is a 42-year-old married woman, and she was actually a driving school instructor. So here, we're going to come back after the break and tell you the details that ended the case with a decision that you may be surprised about. The third case I want to talk about is one where there was uh, a situation uh, the plaintiff was driving his vehicle and he was rear-ended by another vehicle. Now, the claim was that he had a significant muscle injury for a long period of time. He was able to work uh, for a period and then stopped working because of the pain. This is a married man in his 40s who was a sanitation worker. So when he had to stop working, then he lost a pretty decent amount of time before he was able to get back to work. Um, he was claiming medical bills, lost income, and the non-economic pain, suffering, disruption of life, aggravation, inconvenience type of damages that are available in both, mostly all of these cases across the country. The injury, again, an exacerbation or an aggravation of a pre-existing neck and back condition. So in this particular case, this gentleman had, uh, let's see, he had almost $20,000 in medical bills and another 17000 or so in lost wages that he uh, claimed came as a result of his injury. After the break, I'm going to come back and tell you the result of this case. Again, might be very surprising for you. Is there anyone other than my grandmother who never went to McDonald's? That's right. In her entire life, she never went to McDonald's. I'm going to get to the break after I share this story about McDonald's because this is just too funny for words. This California uh, gentleman sued McDonald's for $1.5 million in 2014 because he only received one napkin with his meal. So there is a racially charged argument with the manager and the manager then offers him free burgers, but he claimed that the incident left him emotionally distressed. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo, he didn't get enough napkins, uh, and, and that he was unable to work. So um, guess what happened? You, you got it, nothing. In fact, uh, the lawsuit was dismissed immediately. A Los Angeles judge noted that this gentleman was quite, quite litigious. He had sued Jack in the Box twice without receiving any compensation for those claims. Uh, and there were other lawsuits that he had filed. And then he was actually banned. Uh, he was put on what they call a vexatious litigant list in California, which prevents people from filing lawsuits for a certain number of years. Oh, my, 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 my. Not enough napkins. What are we going to do? All right, let's get back to the show after the break. <laughs> 
Okay, it's break time here on the merry-go-round. We want to give you value. So, do you need an attorney for an injury case or a criminal matter or something involving family law? Mr. Samico has the answer for you. Go to our podcast website, www.thelegalmerrygoround.com. Again, that's thelegalmerrygoround.com and click on the referrals tab. Then, either fill out the form or call the telephone number where you can leave a detailed message that Mr. Samico will pick up, and you'll get a response with a referral to an excellent attorney in your area within eight business hours. And the referral is free, no charge to you for this referral. So again, if you're looking for a lawyer that meets the highest standards, Paul is going to hook you up. And every attorney he refers to meets the highest standards, and Paul has checked them out for you. If you like what you're hearing from him during these shows, you know he's going to take care of you. So go to thelegalmerrygoround.com. And now, back to the show. Okay, so here we are. I know you're all sitting at the edge of your seat waiting to find out what happened to these three uh, people involved, these plaintiffs in these rear-end auto accidents, so I'm going to now share it with you. You're just going to get right to it. Number one, the number one case. This is the case, of course, that we talked about at the beginning where the jury uh, is asked to determine damages, decide how much money the plaintiff gets, rear-end collision in a line of traffic. Um, The verdict comes out uh, surprising. It's a very surprising verdict. The verdict ends up being $33,000, $33,000. Now you might say, well, hey, that's a pretty decent amount of money. But when you think about the fact that she had $30,500 in medical bills and $650 in lost wages at that point, so call it for purposes of discussion, $31,000, they gave this woman $2,000 for her suffering, her pain, her inconvenience, and what is referred to as the aggravation uh, of the injury that uh, she claimed she had. Why was this verdict so bad? Why was it so bad? Well, there was a number of things that I think might have been involved here. And one of those is uh, the potential of, uh, what's, what's the expression? Um, the potential for overreaching. In a case like this, she's claiming that she had this serious, serious injury as a result of this automobile collision. Before the collision, she's got asymptomatic spinal arthritis. And now she's claiming from this injury that she has this horrible situation. And I guess the jury just didn't buy it. I wasn't at the trial. I didn't hear the testimony. But the defense arguments that she received excessive treatment 
I think resonated. She probably had um, uh, what we call sales breath on the stand where she's trying to convince the jury. I don't know. Again, I wasn't there. But I prep my clients, interestingly enough, that there's two distinct personalities in a courtroom on the plaintiff's side. There's the plaintiff and the plaintiff's lawyer. The plaintiff's job is to tell the facts as if the plaintiff is a, is a computer. Facts in, facts out. You type in a document's content, and you, then you print it. It just shows you what you typed. There's no emotion. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotion when you're testifying as a plaintiff, but if you go too far, I think people might hesitate between believing it. The other personality is the plaintiff's lawyer. It's the plaintiff's lawyer's job to persuade and to convince. I think this is uh, consistent with our human experience in life that when someone starts telling you about all their problems, you tend not to listen. But when another person starts telling you about that person's problems, you're going, oh, really? And I think that may be what happened here. Again, I don't know. But I do know that the verdict was highly disappointing. There was also, uh, I think, some, some discussion probably that took place between the jurors about uh, the integrity of the woman claiming all these damages and whether or not she was being completely honest. You remember I told you that she claimed um, that she was uh, uh, hit from behind and pushed into the vehicle in front. Well, that's fine, but she says um, that the impact uh, was so severe and the physical damage just didn't turn out that way. So it just, it just didn't add up, I think, for the jury in this case. Now, the next case was even more interesting. This is a case involving what is referred to as a minor impact rear-end collision. Uh, we have a situation in this case where, uh, again, there were um, a woman who was stopped and two cars behind her. Um, she claims that she felt two collisions, meaning that car number three hit car number two, pushing uh, her uh, car number two into her. But the woman says that car number two hit her first, and then car number three hit car number two, pushing her into her a second time. Again, not a consistent testimony if you're listening to everybody, but two out of the three people involved agree that it was just boom and then boom, and that there was no first contact by the middle car with the plaintiff's vehicle. Notwithstanding that, this woman, I think I might have mentioned in the top half, had $38,000 in medical bills. She claimed that she needed additional medical care in the future to the tune of 21000 So now we're at 59000 And she claims that she lost $28,000 in wages not being able to work at her job. So if we round that up to sixty, now we're at almost eighty-eight thousand or $87,000 in damages that she's claiming. And then she wants on top of that uh, the suffering damages, the non-economic pain, inconvenience, aggravation, disruption of life. The insurance company in this particular case actually made an offer to settle the case before trial of $10,000. So that was rejected by the plaintiff and the plaintiff's attorney. And they decided to roll the dice and go to court. 
I think the overwhelming factor in this case that resulted in the verdict, which I'm going to tell you in just a moment, is the amount of the damage to the cars, which was minor. And I'm going to discuss that, but I want to share the verdict with you. Are you ready for this? This woman with these $80,000 and change in claimed damages for bills and future need for medical care and lost wages, she got a verdict of $2,607. Whoa. Talk about uh, we don't believe you is our, you know, our, our very strong message from the jury in this case. And the reason, again, is I think minor damage to the cars. This is a tactic and a ploy that insurance companies were using very successfully for the last decade or so, only up until about maybe three, four years back when plaintiff's lawyers like myself figured out how to counteract that claim. Now, you know, most of us are convinced by what we see. What we hear is secondary. What we hear has to coincide and support what we see. But if it's a conflict between what we see and what we hear, we're always going to default to what we see. And so plaintiffs uh, who are involved in automobile collisions where there's not a lot of cost to repair the car, the insurance companies call these minor damage cases. These people have always had problems once the insurance companies started using that, uh, that ploy to convince juries that well, there's not a lot of damage to the car, so how could they be hurt? And they actually then bring in photographs showing that there's a scratch or a paint transfer or a little dent. And again, they sing that song, there's not a lot of damage, so how could they be hurt? And it's very convincing. It's a very convincing argument. Until you understand physics. Physics do not fail to apply because it's an automobile. And plaintiff's attorneys uh, have now got good arguments in those kinds of claims and, and smoke screens by the insurance companies and the defense don't work as well as they used to. So here's an example. Close your eyes and imagine that carton, that plastic carton of milk that you buy in the grocery store. And imagine that it's filled halfway. Now you take it about eye level and you drop it to the ground and you see that the milk explodes. It goes all the way up to the top. Then you turn it over and you look at the bottom plastic of the milk carton and, oh, no damage. Well, it's the exact same thing. The analogy is that a vehicle is the container and um, the passenger is the milk. The milk was very shaken up and so can the occupant of a vehicle that's hit from behind. It doesn't take a lot of force to wrench your neck and or your back in an automobile collision, particularly if you're wearing a seatbelt that holds you in place and can cause even more damage with the violence of the collision. And I use the word violence on purpose because then you have to understand the physics. Let's go back to the grocery store. How many of you just take the carton of eggs and put it into your shopping cart? Not too many of you, I'll bet. You open the carton to see if the eggs are cracked. You don't see anything on the carton, but you always still look just to see if the eggs are cracked. Now, why do you do that? Because you know that even a slight amount of damage to the carton could damage the inside eggs. And even though there's no damage whatsoever to the carton, you don't know what's inside. So I think that's the reason that this case resolved the way it did. 
Perhaps the plaintiff's attorney wasn't wise enough to use those examples. Perhaps there were photos. Perhaps it had something to do with the plaintiff herself. There's any number of factors and reasons that can result in a bad verdict for a plaintiff who is suffering for real. The last case was a case, again, where we have an individual who was rear-ended. He was rear-ended by another vehicle. And this guy, he had um, 19, almost $20,000 in medical bills up to the point of trial and another $17,000 in lost wages that he had uh, suffered because he wasn't able to go to work. The insurance company in this case had limits of what is referred to as $100,000, the limits, $100,000. Now, what does that mean? That means that no matter what happens, that's all he's going to get from the at-fault party's insurance company. Imagine this scenario. Again, let's go back to the grocery store. You're very thirsty and you want 10 bottles of water. I mean, you're just going to really just soak yourself in this water. You're so thirsty. But they only have two bottles. Now, how many bottles are you going to leave with when you, you know, get finished with the grocery store? You're only going to leave with two because that's all there was. Everybody that gets auto insurance tells the insurance company how much they want. The states govern the liability limits minimums. So in Maryland, as an example, you must buy $30,000 of liability insurance. In Virginia, you only have to buy $25,000. So if you cause an accident, your insurance company is supposed to pay for it. But if you have limits of twenty-five or 30000 no matter what happens to the other person, that's all that your insurance company has to pay. Now, you go to court and you get a verdict in excess of those limits, then you might have to pay for that by yourself, which is why I tell everybody, please go and get high limits to protect yourself and your own assets. But nonetheless, in this case, with $38,000 of medical bills and lost wages combined and a need uh, to have compensation for suffering and pain and inconvenience and aggravation, disruption of life and all those things, $100,000, it's not really adequate. Well, the jury doesn't know about insurance. You're not allowed to talk about insurance in most cases. And in this case, a jury awarded $187,000 to this individual who had the exacerbation of a pre-existing neck and back condition. As I told you, um, this individual was able to go to work for a bit and then stopped and then was out for quite a bit after that. So um, what also was important in this case, evidence came out that the individual, the suffering plaintiff here, uh, had actually a back condition for which he had undergone surgery many years before. So it was real believable that he was already less than 100%, which did not uh, exist in the other two cases we talked about uh, in the first half and then told you what the results were. $187,000 verdict from this jury. And guess how much he collected? That's right, 100000 because that was the policy limit. So the moral of the story, boys and girls... When you go out into the roadways, you should be protected with good insurance. I've mentioned this in a few other of these cases where I've, or these few other of these shows, these podcast shows where I've told you that you should have good auto insurance 
I would share with you again, the minimum you ever even want to consider, regardless of what type of car you have or how old or beat up the car might be, insurance is there primarily to protect you in case you do something wrong or in case somebody else does something wrong and they don't have good insurance. You want to go out and get at least 100000 Consider getting even a half a million. The premiums on these additional amounts above what you may have now is so insignificant that it's just an absolute no-brainer. Go talk to your insurance company and find out what the additional amounts would be and tell them you want these better coverages. They may or may not want to sell it to you, but you insist. I hope that you drive safely. I hope that you don't get into an automobile collision. I hope you never get hurt. And I always want you to remember when it's concerning the legal merry-go-round of life, I want you to avoid the downs and savor the ups. See you next time. And by the way, I'm still in the infancy of my podcast career here. I would love your review. I would love you to subscribe. Uh, Anything that you can do to support me is extraordinarily appreciated. Hope that you enjoyed this and that you'll continue to listen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Legal Merry-Go-Round. We hope you enjoyed our show. Tune in next time to get a better understanding of real-life legal situations.